Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. How does a church grow? How does a church grow and flourish? Does it grow by music? Is that something we should do? Um, Should we keep up with the cultural trends? Uh, What's being played on the local radios? Try to mimic that and then infuse biblical words into different songs of worship? Is music how a church grows? Or is it different programs? Perhaps fun and engaging events are really what build a thriving youth group. Perhaps if we just connect with the youth in such a way of, of, of an entertainment level, give them something that no one else is giving them, and perhaps then they'll come and we'll have a thriving youth group. Maybe it's different ploys. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I heard about a local church uh, near my hometown, near Lawrenceburg, that is now doing a summer series called God at the Box Office. Their belief, and they made it clear the first sermon, that all truth is God's truth, therefore we can actually preach on different movie topics. You know what this summer's edition is? Disney edition. so, So maybe it's different ploys. Maybe it's, we think through, well, perhaps the way a church grows is we try to tone down scripture and bring it on the level of cultural entertainment. Perhaps it's iPad giveaways at Easter. Maybe church growth occurs by pandering to culture's materialistic pursuits. Perhaps we just offer them something that, if you'll come hear the gospel, one lucky person will walk away with an iPad or walk away with something that really captures the heart of what people want and desire. Or perhaps church growth just occurs by offering services to the community. Perhaps every church should have a a coffee shop. Now, are all these things bad inherently? Well, well, of course not. Um, Now, there's some are. Um, God at the box office is bad inherently, okay? All right? All right? We do not preach on Disney movies, okay? But (laughs) by the end of the sermon, you'll see that. But not everything is... Coffee shops are not bad inherently. Certain programs are not bad inherently. But it doesn't answer the question, how does a church grow? How does a church flourish? Perhaps we should ask the question more personally, how will Lucy grow? How will Lucy Baptist grow? How will we flourish as a congregation? We have a rich history. How will it continue? The night before Jesus is crucified, Jesus prays to his father, alone, quiet, in a garden. And in his prayer, um, which is commonly known as the high priestly prayer, we read about it in John 17. But in his prayer, Jesus prays to his heavenly father and he petitions for a particular group of people. He says in his prayer, I do not pray for the world, but rather those whom you have given me out of the world. Jesus prays for his people. He prays for a particular group of people, those who would come to believe in his name. And in this prayer, he says, he prays to God that he would 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's incredible. Now, if you're hung up on the word sanctify, all sanctify is referring to when Jesus prays that, it means to be set apart. That which is holy is distinct from that which is common. Maybe to give you an illustration, I was thinking about it as we were walking out the door. We had this cup, it's this green cup that I bought. It has one purpose and it only will have one purpose. It was the cup that I used um, in my proposal to Chloe. We set that cup up. I don't drink coffee out of it. We, we, I don't even think we washed it, to be honest. <laughs> we, we used it and then that was it. Maybe wiped it out or something, but it's, it sits. We see it, it has a distinct purpose to remind us of a wonderful evening where both Chloe and I were engaged. It has a distinct purpose. So Jesus prays that God the Father would sanctify, set his people apart in the truth. Notice that this distinct mark is the truth. Unless we think that we can define God's truth, Jesus does for us. He then says, your word is truth. And at first glance, you'll miss it. Jesus did not say your word is true, which would be a, a correct statement. He went one step further. Your word is truth. It's not something that just happens to be true and perhaps other things are true as well on the equal par. No, Jesus affirms that God's word is truth, the ultimate source of authority. So Jesus prays for his people to be sanctified according to this truth. Now, you know the story. After that prayer, Jesus gets up and a flurry of things happen. He's betrayed a mock trial happens. He's beaten. He's before Pilate, another mock trial. Will you release Barabbas or will you release Jesus? Give us Barabbas. Jesus is beaten. He's mocked. King of the Jews. Can't even save himself. Then we see him carrying his cross. He's crucified. Then he's buried and he resurrects. Praise God. 40 days later, he ascends. And what we see is that the apostles wait for the promised helper that Jesus said would come. And so after this, they wait for the Holy Spirit to come. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit does come and he and the church begins to grow. Starting with the apostles and the 3,000 converts afterwards, the church is born, the church is uh, flourishing. And Acts 2.42 tells us that they, these Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And at the end of that paragraph, it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It seems that God is faithful in answering his son's prayer. The spirit of truth comes and he sanctifies, he sets apart God's people according to truth. The church grows and is multiplied. Which reminds me, and this is often, this is a theme that we see throughout Acts, but it reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 
where he says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So not only do we see the church grow according to God's truth, we see it multiply according to God's truth. Indeed, when Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, he got what he asked for. Praise God. So, how will Lucy Baptist grow? How will we flourish in this community? We have a rich heritage. How will that continue? We will grow in our persistence in the word of God and our subsequent application and obedience to God's truth. Everything hinges on that. Dear friends, we are to be people set apart by the truth, set apart by God's word. But in a negative statement, apart from the Spirit's work and growing Christ's church through God's word, we're nothing more than a country club, a social gathering. We might as well be another YMCA because apart from God's word, we're not distinct from the world. And so with that, um, if you will, with that introduction, let's turn to 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. I want to provide just briefly a, a brief exegesis and then a couple of points of application. So with your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So we, God's word reads, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And notice the first phrase, all scripture. Well, what is Paul referring to? Well, he's referring to scripture. But considering the context, Paul is certainly referring to the Old Testament scriptures. We know this because in verse 15, if you just look up, it says, Paul says, and how from childhood you, were, you have been equated with the sacred writings. See, um, another way of describing the Old Testament. And also at the beginning, or in chapter one, verse five, Paul reminds Timothy of the sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so we know, based on those two passages, that Timothy was raised up on the Old Testament scriptures by his godly grandmother and his godly mother. So we know certainly that he's referring to the Old Testament. <laughs> well, all right, Blake, well, what about the New Testament? You say, well, I mean, Paul was writing portions of the New Testament at this time. Are his writings inspired or not? Well, yes. Here are a couple of reasons why I think that when Paul refers to all Scripture, he's not only referring to the Old Testament, but also the teaching of the apostles, which would eventually be codified into the New Testament, including Paul's letters. First, Jesus viewed his own teaching on par with Scripture, 
um, in John 14.10. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus viewed his own words as being on par with his heavenly Father's words. Secondly, Jesus prepared his disciples for the work of establishing the New Testament in John 16, 13. He says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus was preparing his disciples for this early church ministry. You wait for the spirit of truth. Pentecost comes, the Spirit comes, and He guides the early church into all truth. The Spirit is faithful to grow Christ's church. And so God, God the Spirit is faithful then. Praise God, He's faithful now. He's faithful in the illumination, helping us to understand God's truth. as, As fully revealed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And faithful in spirit-filled application of that word as we walk in unity and growing together in Christ-likeness. Also in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, Paul declares that we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul claimed that even his own teaching came from the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in one of the most powerful evidences of the the Bible self-authenticating itself, is in 2 Peter 3.16. Finally, Peter affirms that Paul's letters as being on the same level as the Old Testament when he writes about ungodly men who are twisting Paul's letters. And then then he says, quote, as they do the other scriptures. And so Peter's writing and saying, these ungodly men, they're taking Paul's letters and they're twisting it to their own means and their own ends, sinfully, as they also do, as they do with the other scriptures. That is the Old Testament. In Peter's mind, Paul's letters in the Old Testament are on par. So, The writers of the New Testament understood they were writing authoritatively, not because of anything in themselves, mind you, but because of the Spirit's ministry in guiding the early church into all truth. Praise God, he is faithful. He does not leave us without excuse. We have his word. And so, therefore, all Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is what we read next, breathed out by God, What does that mean? So the Greek word behind this phrase is really interesting. It occurs only once in the New Testament, and it's theonoustos. It comes from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and pneo, which means to breathe. So that's actually the literal translation, breathed out by God. Now, this phrase declares that God's word is inherently truth and therefore authoritative. This is because it reflects the characteristics of its author. Also, mind you, God is the actor in this phrase. It's not that scripture uh, 
breathes out God's words as the scripture, like if, if God was underneath the Bible, but rather it's God who is the sole actor in bringing about, about his word through his ordained means, his spirit and his church. And, and also remember, Jesus says, your word is truth. So Jesus affirms that God's words are not just truthful, but that they are truth itself. So God has been faithful to preserve his special revelation for his people. It's the Bible. It's what you're holding in your hands. Maybe looking at your phone. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's the word of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Peter affirms in his second letter, in, in chapter one, right near the end, Listen carefully. And we have the prophetic word more fully conformed, confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible declares itself to be the words where men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Once again, this is the the Spirit's ministry in the early church and in guiding the early church into all truth. Therefore, all scripture, not just a portion of the whole, but the entirety of the Bible is breathed out by God, that is, inspired God actively producing his special revelation through the pens of godly men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit guiding the early church into all truth. The Bible you're holding is not just a book, but is the active and living Word of God. What a special treasure we have. And God, help us to repent of our love for it. Help us to repent of our neglect of it. Well, I got carried away and I forgot to give you the first point. All that was the first point, the nature of the word of God. The second point is the rest of verse 16 and all of 17, and is the nurture of the word of God. Because here Paul talks about two, two things, the nature of the word of God. And because of the nature, we see how the word of God is nurturing, able to help us and profitable for us to grow. So let's consider this nurturing aspect of the word of God. Paul gives us four characteristics of the word of God, and then he gives us a purpose clause. So four characteristics and a purpose. But before all that, there's this one little word we need to talk about. It's the word profitable. This Greek word is used only four times in the New Testament and is only used in Paul's pastoral letters. So of all the words in the New Testament, this word occurs four times and Paul is the only one who writes it. And not only that, Paul only writes it to pastors to, in the pastoral letters. So it carries the idea of being useful, beneficial, or even advantageous. In each reference, Paul is commending the usefulness of God's word. First, consider 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. 
Listen carefully. So he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Then he offers a, a, um, a negative command, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, and here's where it's key, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. That word value is the same word profitable. So while bodily exercise holds some profit, Paul here is commending godliness, which holds more profit because it has promise for this life and the life to come. Now, did you catch what godliness how it was defined, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul commends the usefulness of Scripture as being highly profitable. And then secondly, um, notice in Titus 3.8, he says this, this saying, what he's referring to is essentially the gospel, verses 4 through 7. The gospel is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Okay, next phrase. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So lest you think that scripture is only for pastors and seminary students, it's only profitable for them. Paul commends the profitableness of scripture to all people. God's word is useful for the building up of God's people and consequently growing his church. So real quickly, as we consider these four characteristics, they all hinge on this word profitable. So first we see God's word is profitable for teaching. This teaching refers to a couple of different things. In 2 Timothy 3.10, it refers to Paul's teaching. We see that scripture's profitable for Paul. It's profitable for him to teach, to teach correct doctrine. We see that it's also profitable for Timothy. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul commends Timothy. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Scripture is profitable for Timothy. And then this is a little implied, but we've already hinted at it before, and I think you'll see what I mean, but it's also profitable for our teaching. 2 Timothy 2.2 is a verse many of you know very well. You then, my child, Paul speaking, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Scripture is profitable for our teaching. This reminds us that God's word is the foundation for everything we believe. Although we should cherish and cherish and read different theologies, sermons, essays, confessions, even uh, creeds, we must remember that these works are only useful insofar as they reflect a correct understanding of God's word. Scripture is profitable for teaching. It's also profitable for reproof. This word here refers to a negative action of disproving what is false. This idea of correcting or pointing out heresy, pointing out wrong doctrine. 
it's profitable for one uh, Greek uh, lexicon had the idea of conviction. It's profitable to hold convictions about what we believe in and certainly what we do not believe. It's profitable to discover what is right and what is wrong. Scripture, persistence in Scripture leads us to convictions that allow us to confront and expose false doctrine. <laughs> scripture is profitable for reproof. It's also profitable for correction. The root behind this Greek word has the idea of what ought to be. Literally, if we're talking about like vertical direction, it refers to something that's upright, that stands strong. So a sturdy wall. It's not crumbling, it's firm and fixed. Perhaps horizontal direction, a straight line, a path that doesn't curve or twist, but it's straight way. Metaphorically, it has this idea of what is correct, what is true, what ought to be. So the word suggests restoring something back to usefulness or bringing about an improvement where there had been some decline. Scripture is profitable for reformation. It's profitable for making what is wrong right. And then finally, the last of the four characteristics, it's profitable for training in righteousness. Interesting Greek study. Every time this word appears in the New Testament, except for this verse here, it has this reference of a son and a father. It has to do with child rearing. In fact, in Ephesians 6, at the beginning, when Paul instructs the fathers to train up their children, he, he uses this word. Also, the writer of Hebrews, in, in Hebrews 12, when he talks about God's discipline towards his people as sons, it's the same word. God's word is profitable in raising up his church. It's profitable for training godly men and women in righteousness. Warren Wiersbe had this wonderful little sentence. I'd like to read it to you. So I think it was uh, John Piper uh, that says that we don't, he made a comment that we don't live by paragraphs, we live by sentences. And so Warren Wiersbe had this good sentence to phrase this. So scripture is profitable for doctrine, what is right, for reproof, what is not right, for correction, how to get it right, or how to get right, and for instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. So it's profitable for what is right, what is not right, how to get right, how to stay right. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Scripture is sufficient for all things. Which, by the way, if, if you didn't pick it up, Paul's use of these four characteristics are comprehensive. It's useful for all of life, which is what the purpose clause leads us to. So we see that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the, the purpose clause. So what, Paul? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, Ladies, unless you get bummed and realize, well, Paul's not talking to me at this moment. The Greek word behind man here is actually a really generic term. And uh, perhaps it could even be translated as people of God. In my studies, what I think I've come to is I think Paul is addressing 
Timothy at this point. We, well, we know he is because he's writing a letter to Timothy. But I think in using this phrase, he's hinting at the purpose of Scripture or one of its many purposes, rather, is it's profitable for all people. And so for the man of God, in one sense, that is generic. It's referring to the people of God. So the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the word complete has this idea of being in shape, well-fitted. And the word equipped actually carries the same root. It's emphasis. So it's this idea of, by using the same root word, equipped, it refers also to mean well-fitted. And it's also what's called the, the perfect tense. And it has this idea of abiding. Perhaps it's like this. So it's the idea that the man of God may be complete, altogether fit and able for every good work. That is God's, the, the fitness, the scripture is able to bring about this fitness to the people of God. And this fitness is abiding, able for every good work. Praise God. Praise God. Scripture is useful for all of the Christian life. Therefore, the word of God is profitable for teaching, profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, profitable for training in righteousness, so that the people of God may be fully fitted and able for every good work. The word of God is sufficient. How could we neglect it? J.C. Rowell's rebuke is needed today. I read this and it's needed. He writes, in all of all men's buried talents, none will weigh them down so heavily as a neglected Bible. Let that not be the case. We must not neglect this precious treasure that we have. We must persist in the word of God. Dear friends, how will Lucy grow? How will we continue our heritage? We will continue and the persistence of the word of God. Praise God. Real quickly, in close, I do have a couple points of application. Since um, tonight is a little more topical uh, in the sermon choice, I, I wanted to bring about some, some things that this made me think of in terms of application, that I think as a community, we can continue to grow and persisting in the apostles' doctrine, growing in the word of God. First, simple, look at the book. Look at the Bible. Read the Bible. If you're not reading it daily, continue in that. Continue striving for that. I'll be transparent and honest my quiet time is nowhere near as consistent as I want it to be and nowhere near as consistent as I desire it to be. But that's the point. I desire it to be more and more consistent. I desire to be more structured in my time so that I can devote more and more time of reading and savoring and enjoying this book because I believe that this is the word of God. I hope that you desire that too. Let's desire that together here at Lucy. And so look at the book, but also in community group, let's not neglect, let's not just sit back and be quiet. Let's all of us join in discussion. Let's talk about God's word and be faithful to do that and grow in community in our understanding of the word of God. Let us never grow tired of it. Secondly, and this one's a little more difficult, 
Um, let's not neglect the rich heritage and resources from church history. Praise God that as he, the Spirit, God the Spirit, led the believers into all truth, God is also faithful to raise up godly men, pastors, who are able to lead and guide the church and to be under shepherds under the ultimate shepherd who is Jesus himself. And so we need to study theology. Let's be good Bereans and see for ourselves whether or not someone's theology is true. I, um, I was talking to Hunter uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me about um, his and uh, Brother Jim's class on Ephesians. And when they got to Ephesians 1, they started talking about Calvinistic interpretations and Arminian interpretations of that passage. Good. That's wonderful. Let's study and see for ourselves whether or not those theologies are, are scriptural or not. Let's not be scared of them. So let's study Calvin. Let's study Jonathan Edwards. Pick up Spurgeon. I, I, on, my bucket, on my list to read, I have John Owen's Mortification of Sin, which is a, a Christian classic. Uh, I'm going to get to it one day. I'm going to read it. Would someone else, want, would you want to read it together? Read Let's read theology. Let's be good Bereans and study for ourselves to see what is true. Let's, let's let theology drive us to Scripture. And remember, theology is only as good as insofar it reflects the Word of God. And then also, let's not neglect Pastor David and Pastor Hunter. God has been gracious to us here at Lucy in providing us these godly men. They have been qualified. They are faithful and they are able to shepherd us. So if, if we have a question, let's run to them. Let's discuss theology and, and, and discuss the word of God with them. Finally, it's all about Christ. In Luke 24, it's Jesus himself who interprets all of scripture concerning himself. So tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon or whenever you have your quiet time and whenever you read God's word, before asking yourself, how does, how does this benefit me? Where do I see myself in the story? Ask yourself, where is Christ on this page? Where is Christ in the story? Where is Christ in these words? Because everything points to Christ. Everything has its ultimate end in Christ. Dear friends, we are Christians I get tired when people say Judeo-Christian values. We are not Jewish. Their Old Testament and our Old Testament may be the same words on print, but they're not the same words of God. Because when we read the Old Testament, it is interpreted through the fullness, the complete work and person of who Christ is. Dear friends, it's all about him. We are Christians Dear friends, let us persist in this. In, in the words of Samuel Rutherford, he says, every day we may see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. I love that because it's true. His love has no end and we see it in all of scripture. Dear friends, we must persist in God's word. 
This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.